Sometimes the light of Christ shines brightest when it bleeds through the cracks of a broken heart. Real people, real stories of hope for the hurting, and triumph over tragedy through faith in Jesus Christ. This is Out of the Grave with Rob and Dave. Hey, everybody, how's it going? Uh, welcome to another edition of Out of the Grave with Rob and Dave. I'm Rob. He's Rob. I'm Dave. <laughs> we have a, uh, a very special uh, guest on the show today, uh, Jennifer Counts. Jennifer, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm so glad to be here. Absolutely. Well, we're glad to have you. And uh, so we spoke just a little bit before we started here, and you have an incredible, incredible uh, background and uh, story to share with us. So uh, when you're ready, just go ahead and start at the beginning, you know, like uh, growing up, things like that. Well, I, you know, my testimony is kind of, um, I had a little bit of exposure to church as a kid, but my family didn't go regularly. And I just from an early age, I had exposure to drugs and alcohol from school, mostly alcohol at home. But when I was a teenager, I was very rebellious. When I got pregnant when I was 19, kind of cleaned up when I was 20 and decided to be an EMT, which was a really good decision, but also a really tragic decision because I hurt my back really bad when I was in my early 20s. And I also met a guy at work and uh, totally fell in love with him. And I mean, I was lost. So, I, you know, was not living for the Lord. We moved in together and um, he was from Bogota, Colombia. And so he grew up in that atmosphere of guerrilla warfare in the Ooh. 70s and 80s yeah. and ran away. Like most of the people that we know that run away, run away to like a trailer park on the other side of town. But he ran away to Miami, Florida and became a paramedic and was a paramedic for 10 years in Miami and then moved to the Midwest with his wife at the time who was from here. And um, they got divorced after he came here. And then we started dating and we moved in together. And so we lived together for five years. And because of my back injury, I started using again, although I had cleaned up and was completely sober when I was working in EMS, but I had to leave EMS because of my back injury. So I can't work. I can barely walk. This is like during the height of like the Elvis doctors, the whole thing that happened in the nineties and the early two thousands where like when I went to the doctor and said I could barely walk because of my back injury, uh, they they just started writing prescriptions. They didn't even try to diagnose the problem. Right. They just started giving me prescriptions. So oh, we yeah, started. I, I had a doctor that would do that. I don't mean to interrupt you. Anything. How you doing? Oh, I'm having trouble sleeping. I got a pill for that. You yeah. know, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm having pain. Oh, I got a pill for that too. Yeah. yeah one day he wrote me four prescriptions before I left the office. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Wow. I went in 20. Well, years says it's all about money. Yeah. I went in 23 years old and said, I'm in constant pain. It hurts to walk and it hurts so bad. I can't sleep. And my doctor said, well, you're young and you're female. So it can't be a serious injury. Here's a prescription for Xanax. And that was the first treatment that I ever had for what ended up being two ruptured discs. Well, well, Xanax, that's for anxiety. But you're just a girl. You're just a girl. So surely it's not a real injury. So it can't be a real it's just injury. hysteria. Right. 
Wow. Hysteria. So here's some Xanax. Just shut up. Oh, my goodness. Wow. So five years before anyone did any diagnostics at all to find out if I had an actual injury. Five years of just opiates and benzodiazepines and tricyclics and more opiates and more benzodiazepines and just on and on. And, and they wonder uh, why there's an opioid epidemic. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, I, I, Freddie, that was his name. You know, I have all these pills, so I'm giving him pills. So now he gets addicted too. And he gets out of EMS as well because he can't work and he has PTSD. He gets diagnosed with PTSD. And while he was still in EMS before he was using, he, he gets diagnosed and we try to get him treatment for PTSD and nobody will help us. Work won't help. The health department won't help. We're working for a tax-based county ambulance district. And they're like, well, we're not going to help you. Insurance wouldn't cover therapy? No. Are you kidding me? In 1997, 98, 99, 2000? No. So we're like, well, maybe the health department will help. So we check with the health department. No. No. And shame on you for asking, you freeloaders. That's the way we were treated. Like we were, you know, like trying to game the system or something. So he starts medicating with my prescriptions and this whole thing just snowballs. And so it gets out of control and, and we, you know, it all culminates in, um, there were two incidents where he was violent toward me. And on both times that he was violent toward me, both times he tried to kill me. Oh my goodness. Yeah. The first time it was, he just snapped and he choked me out and I got away from him and called the police. And by the time that the highway, we were living kind of in the country. And by the time the highway patrol got there, they, he was back to reality and they were very helpful. The highway patrol was very understanding, very kind, very sweet. They actually put their money together. These two highway patrolmen did out of their own wallets and got me a motel room for two nights so that we could get some space away from each other. And he was able to get therapy and I was able to get therapy and things got better for about two years. And then the second time we were taking pills and smoking pot and our neighbor had given us some meth. We'd never done meth before. This was the first time that either of us had ever done meth. And then we had some GHB, which is a bad drug, really bad club drug, date rape drug. And he just, we were walking up the stairs. We lived in a second floor apartment and I had a sonic drink in my hand and, you know, kind of like this, come and go drink. And the straw caught on his short sleeve of his t-shirt and he just turned around and just started punching me in the face and this just goes on he just grabs me and pulls me up the stairs into our apartment and so we had a neighbor that was this like distant cousin of mine small town you know how that goes she heard it and, and heard the fight and came upstairs and i was really into the occult i was very mad at god very angry and and she heard this and she was pentecostal and she always said after that that when she walked in the door she saw a demon and she did because he looked different and i could tell that even though i wasn't a believer he looked different and his accent was gone you know he was english was his second language yeah really his accent was completely gone everything about him was different you know, he's a Hispanic guy. I like so he, goosebumps here. <laughs> yeah, he's a Hispanic guy, so he's small. 
physically about the same size that I was, the same height, very slight build. And he had at one point had picked me up over his head and just thrown me about 10 feet across that apartment. And I hit the wall and slid like down the wall like this. And he mm-hmm. came and stood over me. So I took my leg and just kicked him, you know, in the cojones right between his legs as hard as I could three times. And he just looked at me and laughed and said, I'm going to kill you real slow. B. That that's possession. He was possessed. Yeah, he was. He was. Yeah, I know that was possession. Oh, my. Oh, man. And I wow. knew when he said that, that I knew. He, I knew when he said that, I knew that he was going to kill me. And mm-hmm. uh, and I believe he would have. And it was right then that my cousin came in. She came in then and I got up and, and I ran. I was I was crying. I was screaming. And, you know, oh, God, please save me. Please save me. And And so, you know, she grabs me and holds on to me and she come on, come on. So I ran to her house and we locked the door and I called my friend and her husband came and picked me up the next day. We went back about noon. He went with me because we were going to confront Freddie and tell him, you know, you, you've got to pack a bag and leave because you can't stay here. This is dangerous. Yeah. I don't know what your problem is. <laughs> well, I did know drugs we were on a lot of drugs it was so many well i'll tell you in a little bit but it was a lot okay Mm -hmm. so the first problem was that the apartment was locked from the inside and the chain lock on the front door was chained which was odd um and he wouldn't unlock it so we knew he was in there but he wasn't unlocking that chain lock and um i was able to reach in and unlock it and Brandy, that was my friend's husband. He kicked the bathroom door in because it was also unlocked. And we found him in the bathtub. He had committed suicide. Um, he had taken, you know, I had all those prescriptions and I wasn't taking like the tricyclics. I wouldn't take all of them. I take all the benzos and I take all the opiates. Right. But not all the tricyclics. And he had taken all of them. And um, but he had cut his. This is really gross. He had cut, he'd taken his duty knife um, from EMS. So you carry a knife on you, like to cut seat belts or anything that you might need a knife for. He'd taken that and he had cut his brachial artery, just right here in the bend of your arm. He had cut it and he had left a suicide note in blood on the wall to me. It was very hateful. Uh, the letters were about an inch, about, about a foot tall, about 12 inches tall. And then he had the official cause of death was drowning. What had killed him was that he had passed out from the pills and drowned in the bathtub, which was full of water. It wasn't. I mean, slicing his arm, you would have thought that he bled to death. Yeah, that wasn't it. That wasn't it. He covered all the bases. I mean, he was a paramedic for years. He knew he wanted to die. And so he had taken these pills and gotten in a bathtub and he had also cut himself. So he he was determined, you know, he had multiple ways. Well, looking back it. on it now, do you think that it was the PTSD or the possession of the drugs? Or do you think they were just all kind of working together and, and making everything, you know, just kind of feeding off each other? I think everything, I think it was a perfect storm. But yeah. I think that the root cause was probably, probably possession. Um, I had been really into the occult at that point for about 10 years and I, I was practicing Wicca and I had gotten him really into Wicca and, um, he had, 
was really familiar with different kinds of Latin American paganism. There's a lot of paganism in, in Latin American culture. Many Latinos are very devout Christians. So I don't want to make it sound like they aren't because many are most, I think are, but there are some forms of pagan belief present in Latino culture. And so he was familiar with those. And I really pushed that on him. I really encouraged it. And so that's what he went with. And um, it killed him. It absolutely killed him. And so what that ended up doing, though, you know, there was a time when I was a kid, I got saved when I at church camp at Baptist Hill Church Camp when I was nine years old. And during that time, for a few years, when I was a Christian, I used to pray to God that if anything ever pulled me away, bring me back, you know, and he uses everything for his good and his glory. Right. So what this suicide did, because I knew that what I had seen was not human. Mm -hmm. So if you believe in evil, then you have to believe in the opposite of evil. And at that time, I didn't really understand holy, but I did understand good. So when you practice Wicca, and I'm going to be very blunt, you know, it's, it's kind of like a lot of people don't want to call things out, but I'm going to do that. If you're into neo-paganism, modern paganism, Wicca, New Age, this kind of thing, one of the central teachings is that there's no such thing as good and bad. It's all just shades of gray and it's negative and positive and we don't want to call things out as evil because that might hurt somebody's feelings or, you know, oh, we shouldn't say that this is evil because it's cruel. Well, what this incident did for me was it made me understand that evil is very, very real and that that evil exists and that evil is about the destruction of souls. Evil is about the destruction of people that maybe if evil is real, then maybe the purpose of evil is to destroy people. And so that was the first thing that I was able to accept in terms of truth was the acceptance of evil. It's and interesting it, because some people like that, you know, God made himself real. And, and, and he, I guess, you know, the Lord knew that for you, it was the opposite. Instead of making himself real first, he, yeah, he had to prove to you that no evil is actually a real thing. And it's, and it's after you. That's, that's interesting. Yeah, well, and, you know, you it's hard. Really broken people will get it. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, people that are born into church don't understand this. I was so broken and so bitter, angry. I had already been exposed to so much addiction and so much abuse from various sources. And in various ways, there had been so much emotional and psychological and physical abuse already from different sources at that uh, already up to that point, I was 27 years old when he committed suicide. And already at that point in my life, you couldn't reach me with love, but I could speak evil as sad as that is. That's how it was for me. That's how hard I was. But you know, you're talking about somebody that could defibrillate people before I was old enough to buy alcohol. So, I mean, what do you want? You know, and, and that's something that I think, I think people talked about that a lot in the Vietnam era. Uh, it's less popular to talk about among like Generation X and younger people, but maybe we should, you know, there, there are people in our society that are kind of doing these jobs where you're doing this crazy stuff and it affects you. 
And I'm not saying that I regret it. I did it because I wanted to, and I don't regret doing it. I'm just saying that it affects you. Yeah. It affects you. When, you know, your ex-boyfriend had, uh, you know, committed suicide was, was that basically your final, like your, your wake up call to, to quit the drugs and to come to Christ? Uh, no. No? no. Okay. No, that it got worse. I didn't, oh, wow. have, I didn't have any coping skills. So first I just kind of bounced around for a couple of three years there, just sort of doing meth, smoking it and snorting it and doing pills and just kind of medicating the pain away. And then I got married and things got better. And I, I had my youngest son and then my husband left me and then it got really bad. And there didn't last very long, but there were a few months there where I was like shooting up Ooh. and I, I didn't have any coping skills. And like the weekend that Freddie died, I I will never forget when the coroner called me because the coroner was like, well, I got the toxicology report back on him. And um, he tested positive for every drug I've ever heard of and one that I've never heard of before. What do you know about GHB? And I was like, nothing. I don't know anything. Well, I didn't know. I'd taken it too, you know, but I mean, it was like that. Like, I mean, I just... He and I both already at that point were like, we didn't have the words or the coping skills to deal with what we were trying to deal with. And, and his death, you know, I've often said, and it's true, like whenever he died, he gave me his disease because I did get diagnosed with PTSD and there's no cure for that, by the way. Um, but more on that. So it just got worse. My addiction just got a whole lot worse. And you would think, I mean, like after that, so I would go to the doctor, like I would go to my psychiatrist, the guy who diagnosed me with PTSD. And he'd be like, oh, so you have PTSD. How are you feeling? And I'd be like, well, I just want to die. I think I'd just like to die. And he'd be like, I see. So let's increase the Xanax to two milligrams. Um, have you tried methadone for pain control? <laughs> you know, oh like, I mean, <laughs> like methadone. Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. I was I was on I, I had 180 methadone tablets a day at one point on top. Oh, my of goodness. On top of Percocet. Oh, no, no, when they no. Finally, when they finally diagnosed my two ruptured discs, it was just like, oh, yeah, this was back whenever spinal surgery was like, you know, they pretty much just sawed you in half. You know, it was before microsurgery and, and what they have now. And first back surgery was, yeah, in 97. Yeah. It was pretty much like go home for at least two months. You know, the recovery is going to be hell. And there's, yeah, there's nothing you can do. Uh, within a week, hopefully you'll be walking again. You know, yeah, I, I get you. Oh. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, it, it was just nobody even, they didn't really even try. People just kind of, everybody everywhere just kind of wrote me off. And when I think about it now, I'm 47 now. And when I think about it now, 20 years later, Freddie died on August 27th, 2001. When I think about it now, the thing that makes me probably the most angry is that there was no respect. The only acknowledgement that we got, they sent an ambulance to his funeral. That's it. That's it. Wow. Nobody cared. Nobody cared to this day. I mean, I have like two friends that we worked with that keep up with me on Facebook and check in and are like, you know, hey, how have you been? How are you doing? And they've done that all along. Other than that, the people that knew him, they don't care. 
the, you know, the, the people that were on the board of directors for the ambulance district, they never, nothing, nothing. You know, I think that's so important that, uh, as you say, people maybe who have been Christian since they were children or whatever, uh, have heard about some of these things, but not been through them. I think it's so important that they realize that you can't just say to somebody, you know, Jesus loves you. You know what I mean? Because those are words. I mean, that's, that's all that is, you know, I mean, that's to some people that's like, Hey, you know, let's go down to the corner and, and grab a slice of pizza. You know, I mean, that's why it's so important that we live this, that we show this. Cause you can say Jesus loves you all day. You can get on Facebook and, and post, you know, Bible verses or whatever, but they, I mean, people have to realize that there are a lot of people out there that are, that are completely oblivious to this and have no clue. Don't you know God loves you? They're like, no, right. <laughs> Actually, I don't, I don't have a clue. What do you, what well, are you talking about? It's almost a joke. Here's where, here's where the way that God works gets really crazy. During that time, whenever I was like off the chain on meth, I was actually um, around some people that were manufacturing meth. Okay. Mm-hmm. And one of these guys had been incarcerated at OCC. It was our correctional center. And so where you minister now where I minister now. Yeah. <laughs> and That's and funny. we're, we're like high on freshly manufactured meth. And this guy, I'm talking to him and I'm like rambling incoherently about how much I hate Jesus and why. And I'm telling him that it's because I, I know that I'll never be good enough to get into heaven. And he's like, well, but that's not how, that's not where salvation comes from. Salvation is from faith, not from what you do. And I'm like, I don't think that you're right. And he's like, no, I know I'm right because I learned it in the chapel in prison at OCC. And he proceeds to share with me what he has learned in prison in the chapel. This guy who's manufacturing the, yeah. the <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's crazy. And it gets my attention. And I start to kind of, from this incident with this guy who I still know, who is like clean and sober and doing very well right now, by the way, and has been for years. Um, yeah, praise God. But this really is another, like the same way that Freddie's death making me accept that evil is real, right? This conversation with this guy where he explains to me that, by the way, Jesus is not measuring my life in terms of whether or not I'm good enough. Jesus' whole existence was about making it where he doesn't have to measure whether or not I'm good enough, right? That was him ending that to me was another pivotal thing. And because it made it where I made my peace with Jesus. So I wasn't born again, but I started to believe. So about a year later, yeah, probably about a year later, I quit doing meth and had a huge seizure and had brain damage and moved in with my parents. And as I was recovering from that, I started attending a Catholic church and went through RCIA classes, the Rite of Christian Initiation for adults classes, and became Catholic, became Roman Catholic. And I tried to go back to like the church that I had gone to, the Baptist church that I'd gone to growing up. And I just ran into someone and had a bad experience there. And I've had great experiences with that church since then, but you know how church hurt is. So I went to the Catholic church and they were great. But what ended up happening was a few years later, when I was 37, by the time I was 37, I had not had any really good interactions with people in like 20 years at that point. 
And um, I ended up in Springfield in a domestic violence shelter. And I found out that somebody that I used to party with in my hometown was now a drug counselor in Springfield for an outpatient rehab organization that at that time was being run through Praise Assembly out on North Glenstone. So I called her up and I'm like, you got to help me. (laughs) I don't want to live in this shelter. And she said to me, look, no offense, but I've known you for years and I know how you are. And I'm sober and my sobriety is really important to me. And uh, I want to be friends with you. But if you want to talk to me, you're going to have to meet me at church because I just don't want to talk to you anywhere else. And then she said, and bear in mind, the only church that I've been to for like years is a Catholic church. She said, if you're really serious about this, you can go to freeway tonight. I'll have somebody come and pick you up and go to freeway. Well, freeway is this like service. You know, if you're not from Springfield, there's a service for homeless people. And um, so she had somebody come and pick me up and we pull up outside of freeway and like, I can hear the music outside. And I remember just sitting there and thinking, what kind of tent revival is this? What's going on in there? Cause it's not like a Catholic service at all, you know, but we go in, right. We go in and there's like this guy with like tattoos on his face and his neck. And he's like sitting there crying. And I'm like, I'm just watching this and I'm like, somebody's going to make him leave. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can imagine my surprise whenever he gets up and starts to preach. Cause that was John Stroop. Oh, Rob's wow. laughing. Cause he knows. Yeah. John is like now, like, you know, he's started ministries all over the world, written yeah. books. Um, and he was saved in prison and freeway is huge. It's a worldwide ministry for marginalized people. And um, at this time it was like me and 10 other people freeway was just a very budding baby ministry at the time. But so I started going, what I found was that if you live in a shelter in Springfield, Missouri, basically there's a church that will come and get you seven days a week and take you to their church. And a lot of times they'll feed you like homemade food and, and they'll tell you about Jesus. And so I had the born again experience and, um, and it it changed everything. I had the seizures that I'd started having stopped. Awesome. I was healed of epilepsy. Man. And that was that was a John Stroop. <laughs> I, I was at Freeway and he was preaching about the little boy, you know, the, the story with the little boy that would have seizures and fall in the fire. And I thought, well, right. you know, maybe because that started when I quit using meth. So maybe that was just a demonic thing with addiction. And maybe because I quit using meth, then it just that demon, just that demonic stronghold just switched to something else that could control me. So maybe if I just asked. I could be healed. And so I asked and I was, and I've never had another seizure and I don't take any seizure medicine and I haven't for 10 years. So was uh, that first time going to the freeway, the the church there, is that when you, I mean, that first time going, is that when you gave your life to Christ or did, was it, you went a few more times before you were like, okay, I want to do this. It took about three months. It took a while. It was like, it was like a process for me because I was very committed to being Catholic and I didn't want to stop doing that. And I knew that if I got into this born again thing, that I was never going to stop. Like I knew that there was not going to be any going back. And I felt like I would be betraying all of the really good. And I mean this, when I say this very good, kind Catholic people that had helped me, Yeah, but I really wanted God to talk to me and 
I had tried to be a nun, but you can't be a nun if you have kids or you have a history of mental illness. And I had both. And I thought that God talked to nuns. See, because I didn't have the understanding of the Bible that I have now, which Uh is that God talks. God really wants to talk to everybody. But back then I thought God talked to nuns. What I really just wanted was for God to talk to me. And when I figured out that all I had to do was just really give my whole life to him and be willing to listen, then he would talk to me. Then it was like, okay, then I'll just do it. So when when you did that, was, was it an altar call? Like, did they, you know, have, it wasn't anything like that. Did somebody come to you, pray with you, or was it something you did on your own? I did it on my own. It was, it was strange. It was like the strangest. It was like a pressure. It was like this constant presence of God. And it was almost like this, like a throbbing, like just a, like just all the time. And, um, And then finally, one day I was in my room at Harmony House, which is a domestic violence shelter here in Springfield. Springfield, Missouri is where, you know, I'm at. And and, um, I mean, it was just overpowering. I just couldn't handle it anymore. And I just fell down on the floor in my room at Harmony House and just cried and just said, you know what, God, I I believe, I believe, I believe that Jesus is the son of God. And I believe that he died on the cross to atone for my sins. And, and you know what? I'll do anything. You died for me and I'll do anything that you want me to do. Anything. Mm. You just tell me where to go and you just tell me what to do. And I you still know, I have that you, attitude. I pray that wow. prayer every day and I'm doing crazy things. <laughs> well, I think American Christians, we've, you know, I was raised Pentecostal, even though I had strayed and then came back later. But, you know, we've got this idea that there's certain words that you say. You know, there's certain things that you do. And like you say, Dave, there's, you know, you you go to the altar or whatever. It's a church thing or whatever. But you, people forget it's a heart thing. You know, I mean, the, the thief on the cross just said, remember me. You know, we, you know, we think that it's got to be, uh, let's see, you know, forgive me of my sins, come into my heart. You know, and if you don't say those words, um, but I've known people, like you say, like you, that just say, man, I, you know, I don't know if you're there. I don't know if you're real. But man, if you are, just just fill me, just help me, you know. And that was that was their conversion experience. There was no nobody to lead them. It just yeah, it it, it just happened. I, yeah, I tell people it can happen anytime, anywhere. It's a heart thing. It's not. I wanted. Words. It's, it's not a prescription. It's not a magic formula. I wanted. So I had gone voluntarily signed up for outpatient rehab. My friend that was a drug counselor at higher ground, which is now an independent outpatient drug rehab program, but at the time was partnered with praise assembly. And I had voluntarily signed up for six months with higher ground of outpatient drug rehab, which was one of the best decisions that I've ever made. And I would go like, I would go four nights a week. And the the fifth night that they didn't have, I was a Wednesday night service. So I would go to that on Wednesdays. So there's five nights a week in church. Right. And then I, on Saturday nights, I would go to freeway. And then on Sundays, I had church on Sunday morning and church on Sunday night. So I'm going to church eight days a week or eight times a week. And, um, you know, I'm around all these Christian people all the time. And and what I'm hearing from these Pentecostal people, you know, these charismatic believers is this like dynamic and interactive relationship 
where God is talking to them and giving them direction, like step-by-step direction and missionaries. I would love to hear missionaries talk about, they would get into these like crazy, like experiences overseas. And I wanted that. Like, I just wanted, I mean, yes, overseas maybe, but not necessarily anywhere. I just wanted to have this like crazy wild adventure life where I was just living for the Lord and he was just sending me places and I never knew what was going to happen next. And um, so that's what I did. So that's what I did. I know that because, you know, you and I have talked and we're friends, but where did your ministry actually start? The time where you said, well, you know, I've made the heart change. I've made the life change. I've made the head change. So I'm going to start trying to reach out to other people. The Missouri Hotel. Really? Wow. First thing that happened was I got a job at the Missouri Hotel. It's the most dangerous job I've ever had. Probably the best job I've ever had. So the first thing was the North Side. That was just one thing. There was a lot of other things, too. But the North Side of Springfield. Um, and then I've also done prison ministry. And I've been to Cuba four times, preached at three different women's conferences in communist Cuba. Just tell me where to go, Jesus, and I'll go. And We're in the uh, right direction, that's right. Yeah, you know, <laughs> what a blast. Right, that's right. cool. Well, you want to tell Dave real quick what the Missouri Hotel is? Oh, it was uh, one of the largest homeless shelters in the country. Wow. Yeah. 230 was- beds. Those of us who and, live in Springfield would, you know, we, uh, it's, you know, it's, I don't even know if they still have it or if they do, it's not on commercial street, but we would closed. avoid, well, we would avoid that at all costs if we could yeah. know, by car, but especially if you're walking. Yeah. It was it, um, wow. So they, they have, they've kind of, it was shut down completely for a while, I think. And now they've rebuilt a new building and it's much smaller. So there is a shelter, but at that time it was a, hotel building that was over a hundred years old that had been purchased and repurposed as a homeless shelter. And it had 230 beds. And my job, my title was night manager. So what I did. Yeah. (laughs) During business hours, all of the like case managers and the kitchen staff, and you know, there were people there and at night and on weekends, there was a night manager and I was one, there were four of us. And there was uh, drugs and prostitution. I don't know what all, because again, I avoided the area, but I, yeah. And I was so naive whenever they hired me, they were like, so what we're really interested in here is your background in EMS. And I was like, yeah. And they're like, so are you comfortable interacting with law enforcement? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, oh, so you're comfortable calling 911? And I'm like, sure. And they're like, so if we hired you, would you be okay calling 911 if it was necessary? And I'm like, well, yeah, that's what you want me to do. I can do that. And like, I didn't, I was like a week into the job before I was like, they hired me to be the house snitch. Oh, these people are going to kill me. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, oh, my they, goodness. Almost they almost did like every day on my way to work, I'd pray, you know, and it'd be like, well, God, if they kill me today, I know that I was called to this and that means that I'll be a martyr. So I'm okay with it. But if there's any way that I could live, then I'd like for you to protect. Because I do like to be alive. It's a pretty good, pretty good life. Right, right. So (laughs) (laughs) I could use some help. (laughs) 
And uh, I mean, it, it was it was pretty intense. I wear running shoes to work. Wow. But that that was the first thing. And it was definitely a test of my faith. But I'll tell you what, it was just I mean, I've been so blessed. But I, I want to say this for sure, though. One thing about my life that is radically different than a lot of people that I know who have had radical transformations, everything in my life has gone wrong since I got saved in a lot of ways. Um, I decided while I was working at the Missouri hotel, I decided that I wanted to get a degree from evangel. And at first I was a human services major and then I changed it. I had just gotten married and I decided to change my major after one semester and be a church ministries major. And when I did that, it cost me my marriage, my mother, who I have a much better relationship now with than I have had in the past. God love her. She blew up and yelled at me when I changed my major. I'm going to say that again. It cost me my marriage when I changed my major to ministry. It wow. cost me friendships. And I still haven't graduated. I still need three credit hours to graduate. So I tested out of them last fall and there was a software failure on the test. And so I had to retake it. I wasn't able to graduate in December. I mean, it's just been one thing after another. And huh. that's just the degree. I mean, it's just my whole life has just been one challenge after another. That said, there have also been crazy, incredible blessings. It is not always, you know, I try to tell people that sometimes blessings are backhanded. And a lot of times you can tell spiritually, you can tell that you're doing things right whenever you get a lot of resistance. Yeah. When I started going to evangel, what I wanted to do, I go to James River Church, which is a huge church in Springfield, Missouri, big, one of the biggest churches in the country. And, and James River has this wonderful women's ministry. And I wanted to do women's ministry. I wanted to talk to other women with broken lives and broken pasts. And, and I was just really passionate about this. So I went to Evangel because I was going to do women's ministry. And so somebody from my church comes up to me at church one day and they're like, hey, you're Jennifer Counts. Yeah, I've heard about you. You have a really crazy testimony. And I'm like, oh, really? What'd you hear? <laughs> and they're like, oh, I heard you have a really intense testimony. And I'm like, no, seriously, what did you hear? Right. You know, and he's like, have you ever thought about doing prison ministry? And I'm like, with women? It's like, no, with men. And I'm like, yeah, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> and yeah, Rob's laughing. And so he's like, well, just pray about it. So the dude comes back the next Sunday. He finds me again. And he's like, did you pray about prison ministry? And I'm like, I forgot. Did you pray? <laughs> yeah. And he's like, well, you should, you should really consider it. I think you'd be really good at prison ministry. And I mean, this guy was like a pest. This went on. And finally I like, it broke me down, you know? And I, so I'm like, okay, just give me an application. I'll think about it. Well, the, here's the end result. I've been doing prison ministry for James River Church for four years at Ozark Correctional Center in the same chapel. Remember that guy who explained to me about being saved by faith and not works when we were really high on meth. Yeah. I, I do ministry in the same chapel where that guy learned about Jesus. Wow. Isn't God funny how he works things out? Yeah. yeah. And the class that I do there, which is living free, um, which is typically done in a small group format, but there's such an interest. There's so much interest that I have to teach it like a class. And 
at one point before the pandemic, I was having 60 to 70 guys a week come in for living free. And I living free at OCC has the state record for the biggest attendance of any chapel event held in the Missouri Department of Corrections since chapel records have been kept. So basically in the history of prison chapels in the state of Missouri. Well, you know, I never saw that coming. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Well, when I was doing my my graduate work at Drury in criminal justice, I I did an internship there at OCC. And that's a difficult place to to minister, uh, because by the time people get to OCC, uh, it's it's basically a 12 to 24 month program. Uh, What it is, Dave, is that Ozarks Correctional Center, if you can prove that your crime uh, was not caused by but uh, if you can prove that either alcohol or drugs kind of, you know, uh, exacerbated that, then they get you into the program. Well, no matter what your, how many years that you have, once you get in there, it's either 12 to 24 months, and then you can get out. You still have the, you can still get in trouble and you're still on probation. But when you're in there, I mean, I was, I tried to teach a class in there and, and I stood up before these guys and I presented my amazing idea. And and nobody moved, nobody said nothing. And one guy kind of said, "Do we have to? Or are we required to do that?" And I said, "Well, no, lost." <laughs> and the whole uh, you know, so I mean, I really honestly commend you because that yeah, is, so I, pay attention. <laughs> yeah, that that is tough, man. That is a, that is a tough crowd. As right. the comedians say, that's a tough crowd. Well, I just I just do like I said. You know, my whole deal is you just tell me where to go and what to do, Jesus, right. and I'll do it. I think of it like I'm Forrest Gump and he's Lieutenant Dan. Although, you know, <laughs> it's a lot easier to deal with than a bitter alcoholic amputee. Fact. Right. But <laughs> it's just worked out. And, you know, every every time when I'm on my way back, I think that maybe I'm there more to save me than for them because it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. It really is. It oh, really is. Absolutely. You know, and is and it definitely sounds like it, you know, listening to your testimony and what you've come through and where you are now and your faith and the work that the Lord is doing in you and through you and what you're doing to help other people. It's it's amazing. It truly is. As we wind down, do you have any uh, any any words for people out there who may have you know, gone through what you're going through, or maybe they're kind of on the fence about coming to Christ, anything like that? Well, don't give up. Never give up. I mean, look, what do you ever have to lose in anything that you're going to do? You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. seriously, on your very worst day as a Christian, no matter what the world takes from you, you still know how it's going to end, right? Right. The world can't even kill you. Have you thought about it that way? If you're born again, you're indestructible. You are. You can't die. Seriously, you can't die. Not spiritually. No. I mean, seriously. The thing that I love the most, I think, about the born again life, or at least one of them, is just being able to live large and be fearless and just not have to, just really being able to truly cast all of your anxiety all of your fears, all of your worries, all of your concerns, just cast it on Christ. Yep. What a great life. I really Absolutely. do. I just, you know, I, I'm pushing 50 here and I still just ramble around just doing whatever. 
and it's all going to be all right. Amen. And it, people are afraid to share their faith, but I just don't even understand why. Because if anything ever sold itself, it's the gospel. Yes. Yes, that's absolutely correct. <laughs> well, Jennifer, thank you so much for being on the show today. Rob story. and I, we great story. Absolutely. We greatly appreciate you being here today and uh, having you on the show has been a blessing. And guys, be sure to tune in to Out of the Grave with Rob and Dave every Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. Central on Gospel Rocking, Gospel Rockin' Radio, rather, dot com. The GRR, or as Rob and I like to do, the Grr. <laughs> all right. we, don't, we don't mean to scare you. Just... No, 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 not at all. Not at all. That's a I'm good girl. That's a good girl. <laughs> Make sure that you stop by our um, Facebook page. Give us a like and uh, show us some love there. And you can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. Make sure that you hit the subscribe button, like like the videos, hit the uh, bell notification so that you uh, know whenever we upload brand new content. And if you're not able to tune in on Wednesdays, no problem. We archive episodes of the show at anchor.fm slash out of the grave. And last but not least, we are on Spotify. So make sure you add us to your playlist and we will catch you guys next time. Be blessed and be a blessing to others.